What's going on, everybody? Back again, uh, episode two of season two. Um, my guest today is a former Vancouver Canuck and Washington Capital by way of Brown University. Tough grinding forward on the ice with an even bigger amount of grit off of it. He played 114 NHL games as an undrafted free agent. His book, Fighter, Defying the NHL Odds, is going to be available on October 25th. Welcome to the Hockey Talk podcast, Aaron Volpati. How you doing, Aaron? Yeah, I'm good, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Good, man. So where are you these days? I'm in Lake Country in the Okanagan. So I, I, I split time between Vernon and Lake Country, but they're, you know, they're pretty close together. So I have a home office in Lake Country and, a, and an office in, in Vernon that I work out of. So That's good, man. Yeah. Fire, fires weren't too bad this year? No, we had a good summer, thankfully, finally. Uh, <laughs> We had a little bit of smoke a week ago, I guess, with um, with that hope hope fire. But yeah, yeah, <clears throat> the last few summers have been pretty miserable, unfortunately, with with all that smoke. So uh, it's been a nice change for sure. Everyone was complaining how wet May and June were, and I was like, "This is good, <laughs> this is good." So no, it's been good. It's the British Columbia way. I mean, we get nice weather. Yeah. We complain it's too hot. Then it rains. We complain we don't get sunshine. So it's it's uh, yeah. It's that's like, how you know you're you're from BC. Yeah, I, I found that it was a similar similar to COVID. You know, when it was lockdown, where everyone wanted to be out and be free, and then my my wife and I got a little trigger happy and did some traveling, and now we're kind of like, oh, we just want to like chill at home and do nothing. You know, <laughs> so you always want you always want what you can't have, I guess, but. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I want to get into your life uh, and the book, but uh, this is a hockey show, so we got to start with that. And um, you know, looking up your your history, man, you grew up in Revelstoke, so um, I'm unfamiliar with Revelstoke in terms of how how large that community is. Uh, I mean, were there many hockey players in that area for you to go up against and kind of test, you know, your level at? Not really. No. I mean, yeah, there's about ten thousand people, give or take. I think the time of year. Uh, it's cha- I mean, it's not the same town I grew up in now with the ski hill there and they got big plans for a big golf course. And uh, so it's changed a lot. But yeah, it's it's 10,000 people, give or take, you know, a thousand or two thousand people. But uh, yeah, you know, it's funny, like I always tell people this and even the people I work with now that I, I was a good I was a good hockey player, but I wasn't that good, really. Um, I was, you know one of the best players in Revelstoke, but it's, I mean, it's a small town of Revelstoke. It's not a ton of people, right. A ton of kids. So yeah, I, I mean, we played single a, I played house at like, I think I was 14 played house hockey and, you know, got cut from all the select teams and BC teams and, uh, and things like that. So, you know, if you were to, to take me and inject me into Kelowna at the time, I, you know, definitely would have been at the top end, but, um, definitely was, was top end in Revelstoke. So I don't know if that gives you an idea of, of what it was like, but yeah, it was just, it's a small town, right? So it's a little bit different. Well, I was going to say, I, I grew up in Cloverdale, which is kind of oh, yeah. between Surrey and Langley and, and kind of the same as you, like in Cloverdale. Yeah. I was, I was maybe top 10 or 15 skill wise. Yeah. And I remember my 14 year old Bantam AAA year thinking like, okay, next step WHL. Like, I don't know, yeah. you know, who's going to be fortunate enough to have me. And I, we yeah. played, uh, I think our third game of the year, Burnaby winter club. Uh, and they had Landon Ferraro and they had, I think yeah. half their team went on played junior. And after that game, I was, I remember sitting in the passenger seat of my dad's truck. And that's when I started thinking like, okay, I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Cause uh, after yeah. playing that team, hockey's not probably in my future. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of an eye opener when you get to some of those bigger, bigger settings, I guess. Right. Yeah. Uh, did you have it in your head that you you always wanted to be a hockey player then when you were older, or, or was it just sort of something to do in in town? And no, I so I always wanted to like my NHL was a was an NCAA scholarship. You know, when I was, uh, I mean, I had kind of the dreams every kid has of playing hockey when you're you know anywhere from three to 12 13 but then then reality kind of sets in when you're that age right um you know where you shape up compared to everyone else and so you kind of find your lane a little bit uh I think at that age uh but that being said again I you know with these experience I had later in life um it really just opened up a whole new world 
to me of what, what was actually possible. But, you know, I didn't think that when I was 13 years old, obviously. So yeah, I, uh, I kept it pretty realistic as a kid and, you know, I knew I was, I was good, but you know, I never got an invite to any WHL camp or, you know what I mean? So I'm like, if I can just sneak into junior a and, and get a scholarship, like that'd be, you know, that'd be my NHL. And so that was what, what I always set out to do was, was, was get a scholarship. Yeah. You did play for the, uh, the Vernon Vipers and uh, Vernon's, a, I mean, from what I know, anyways, Vernon's a pretty decent hockey town. I mean, it's, it's kind of the main ticket for yeah. them. And how did you end up there? Did they come to you or, or were you just kind of a walk on and, and they liked you enough to, to keep you around or how did that all play out? Yeah. A little bit of, both uh they liked me we were the revelstoke grizzlies junior b team was affiliated with vernon so i got in a few games with the junior b team in revelstoke when i was 16 uh kind of as an ap right midget ap a little bit of junior games and then yeah they they noticed me they liked me and uh but at the time like i think they were the best team in canada for you know three four years in a row there like and and they used to pack the building and yeah it was the main main draw in town <clears throat> um so yeah and I, and for me i was like man if i can play in one of the best teams in, in the country in junior a then yeah definitely so uh but i you know essentially had to fight my way there because again yeah. that was when the league was a little little different well a lot different <laughs> and uh a lot of intimidation right and that that style of play so i I always knew who I was and I knew my role and I'll never forget, uh, actually the, the GM of the Revelstoke Grizzlies, Larry Black, who's, who's not with us now, but he, he helped me. And, you know, I was a decent junior B player. Um, not one of the best, but you know, I was maybe second, third line kind of thing, put up a decent amount of points and he, he sat me down and he's like, don't ever forget who you are. Cause he, he knew that when I went to Vernon, uh, you know, I wasn't, I was going to be, grinding, fighting, playing on the fourth line, especially on that team. Right. And yeah, so he just said, you're this, you're not this and don't forget to, but I mean, it it really helped me because I I embraced that role. And I think that's something that kids can learn now is not everyone can be the, the top line player and and put up all the points. Right. Um, You know, there's guys in the NHL that make a living, that because they can they can win faceoffs and kill penalties right it's not sexy but hey they have a good career out of it like carl's a perfect example you talk yeah. with him right he's a perfect example of a guy that you know embraced his role he knew who he was and played it you know as one of the best in the world at it and had a great yeah. career out of it right so and, and i mean i wasn't obviously to that degree in terms of uh longevity and and, and career-wise in the nhl but I wouldn't have made it otherwise. Right. So you got to pick a lane. And so I did that from an, at an early age, I guess you could say. And uh, yeah. And then went to Vernon. So. Yeah. I mean, that's the hockey pyramid, right? I mean, my, uh, my younger brother, uh, he played with a guy who's now in the Chicago Blackhawks uh, organization. He'll probably end up the way they traded half their team. He'll probably end up as a top six forward yeah. without even really trying, I'm sure. But uh, you know, same thing, right? In, in minor hockey, and uh, he played junior A up in uh, Prince George, and he was, you know, 16 years old, had like 70 points in 50 games, kind of thing, and then drafted by Edmonton, and then all of a sudden, you get to Ed- he gets to Edmonton, and they had Hall, Eberle, yeah. all these top six guys. So he starts fighting, and, and same as you, right? It was just sort of if he didn't do that, he's probably buried in Bakersfield and never sees the light of NHL, and. Yeah. Uh, and he's had a pretty, pretty decent NHL career um, since then. But um, you mentioned you ended up in Brown. How did that go down? Were you on a lot of recruitment trips or, or how did that all happen for you? Yeah. So this is where the whole story gets pretty interesting. Um, and, and really where my book starts. And so I got really badly burned uh, my, after my second year in Vernon so we were out camping and I was, you know, messing around with gas and fire, thought I was invincible, like a lot of uh, young men, I guess. And one thing led to another. And yeah, I, I basically blew myself up and got uh, airlifted to Vancouver that night. And, and we can go into the to, to more into that of what it, you know, it would actually happen or, or what that recovery kind of looked like. But 
So I hadn't, hadn't even talked to a, an NCAA school after two years in Vernon. Cause again, like I wasn't really that good. I was a scored one goal my first year in Vernon and, you know, probably had 20 fights. Right. And not exactly like uh, what the, the NCAA schools were recruiting for at the time or, or now or ever. But, uh, and then my second year, I, I, you know, played more like third line was still scrapping all the time and <clears throat> kind of really established myself, I guess, as one of like a, the feared, not in, I wasn't an enforcer, but I, I could always hit. Right. And I was probably one of yeah. the better hitters in the league and, and established myself that way. And then, you know, again, just chasing that, chasing that scholarship, I figured, Hey, if I can add that little bit of skill element to my game, my, in my last year of eligibility, then, you know, I, I figured I could get a scholarship, especially playing on a, on a team like Vernon, right. Because there's, there's scouts in the stands every night and, you know, uh, out of 23 guys on our team, you know, every year, you know, more than half of those guys are getting scholarships. Right. And so I figured, yeah, again, if I can add that layer to my game, just keep slowly adding it, then, then I figured I could do that. So then this burn happens and I'm told that, you know, hockey's over. Right. I remember actually it was, it was about two weeks into my stay in the burn unit. And I remember asking the doctor or no, sorry, this was, uh, that was the call. So I remember talking to the doctor about three days. The first few days are pretty foggy. I don't remember a lot. And then yeah, about day three, I, I asked the doctor because the first thing that popped into my head was like, can I play hockey again? Right. Because, uh, I was pretty fucked up. And, uh, so I asked him this and I'll never forget the look on his face and he just kind of froze and I, he was almost he's just like this poor kid thinks he's going to play hockey again i could tell right on the look on his face right and he just said listen like this these types of recoveries take years not not months like you're yeah. not going to be playing hockey in in three months here because our camp was in yeah three four months and so for me i was like wow okay like that's it right and i i accepted it there um because I mean, I had to, but I was also thankful that I wasn't going to be, you know, my face wasn't going to be permanently damaged. Right. Or I, you know, I could live a pretty, a relatively normal life. I didn't know what that would look like at the time. Uh, I was 40% third, second degree burn. So I knew I'd have some pretty gnarly scarring, which I do. And, uh, but yeah, I was supposed to make a full recovery. It was going to be a long summer and a long year too. But again, I was just thankful, right. That, that life was going to look relatively normal still. And, and I kind of accepted the consequences of, of what had happened, right. Of, yeah. of being, you know, negligent and irresponsible and all these things, right. With, with the gas and, and the fire. And then, so yeah, my first two weeks in the burn unit, that's, that was kind of my mentality. I was, uh, I was really fighting this battle of trying to be thankful and, have gratitude that, you know, I'm going to a survive and be, you know, live again, a relatively normal life. But I was also down and depressed that, you know, hockey was done. Right. I had one more crack at it one more year. And I knew I'm like, man, I knew I could get some sort of scholarship. Maybe it was div three even, yeah. but just something to, to go play hockey for four more years and get an education. Right. And now that was taken away from me. And so now going back to your question for, for Brown, this is, this is how it happened. I was in the hospital. I got a coach from, or sorry, a call from my coach, Mike Vandekamp, two weeks into my stay. And he said, you know, how you doing? And I said, well, I've not been better, but uh, hanging in there. And he said, I just was talking to the assistant coach from Brown university and they're looking for this type of player. And his exact words were, we, Brown told him, we want a guy that can put the fear of God in the defenseman of the Ivy League. And my coach says, I got the perfect guy for you, but he's, you know, burnt himself to a crisp and so doesn't look uh, promising in the future. But so he said, listen, just, just call him uh, and just, just chat with him. So, so I'm like, okay, I did. Got my parents to, you know, we took down the number. I, I'm still wrapped like a mummy, so I can't. Yeah really move or anything and my parents put the phone up to my ear and yeah I talked to the assistant coach Danny Brooks from Brown University and it was left pretty open-ended and he just said you know listen we're sorry to hear what happened we wish you the best in recovery 
and you know we'd love to see a play one day kind of thing which you know both of us knowing that like i have one more year left so i'm not playing but um <clears throat> so i was just left like that really and i remember hanging up the phone getting a little bit emotional and just again sitting with this reality of in the burn unit and just I started, I started asking myself questions and going down the big laundry list of why I couldn't play. You know, there's this big list of the skin grafts were going to be, you know, too fresh and very limiting. Uh, infection risk was a huge one. Yeah. I was going to be in a full body suit for two years. Uh, I wouldn't be able to sweat from those areas, right? Because the third degree burns, you burn everything. Sweat glands, nerve glands, don't feel anything, can't sweat. So that's a risk when your heart rate starts getting up. Uh, so there's this huge list, right. And it's obviously going to hurt. I mean, the pain yeah. thing was a major part of the, re the recovery. And so, you know, I, again, I just kept thinking, I'm like, I've worked my whole life to just talk to one of these guys, an NCAA scout. And I finally have had that and like, and look where I am. Right. And I went down that list of reasons. And I just said that that's not, those aren't good enough for me to just give up. Right. And so I just made a choice. I said, uh, basically was willing to die before giving up or letting, letting people or letting the doctors tell me what I'm capable of. Right. And that's when it all, that's when it all changed. And that's when this whole journey started. And that's when I discovered, you know, the power of visualization and, and all these things, people ask me, you know, how did you discover this practice and, and all that? And, and this is how I was bedridden in a hospital in the burn unit and couldn't move. Yeah. And so you got all, all day could, to think about it. All right? I could do is think. And pr prior to that, all I thought about was how much it fucking hurt and how much, you know, how miserable I was that, you know, what, what am I going to do with my life now? Right. That identity was stripped away. And so, yeah, I, I just made a choice that those weren't good enough reasons. And I was going to walk out of that hospital and come back and play hockey and, and get a scholarship to Brown. And, and, and that's what happened. And there's a, I mean, a lot more, in the journey and the recovery in there than, than what I just told you. But, and that's, I mean, a, a lot, mostly what the book is about, but yeah, man, that's when it all started with, with Brown and yeah. And then that's when the journey started. How much of an adjustment was it to, to go from, from where you lived to then, you know, you're on the other side of the, well, the other side of the continent, different country and you're playing in Brown and uh, you know, like, what was that experience like for you? Especially because like you said, the NCAA is is mainly known as like a skill league and they wanted you to go in there and, and scare the hell out of every other defenseman in that uh, division. Yeah. So, I mean, what was the adjustment like for you? Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely an eye opener. Uh, I remember getting there. So for me, like every level I went up, I always reverted back to skating, hitting and fighting. But yeah. you couldn't fight in college, right? So, yeah. And then I just, once I established myself with, with those tools of, you know, hitting, fighting, you know, grinding, uh, then I would slowly add those layers to my game, which I did at every level. And so I figured when I got to college, not only is, is everyone that much better, right? You're talking about the best junior A players in, in North America, there's also like 28, 30 guys. So I'm like, I got there and I'm like, how the hell am I going to make the team? Like I wasn't a top recruit, you know? And so if there's one or two spots on forward up for grabs, you know, I figured I'm not slotted in here. And so again, I, I went back to, yeah, to, to my roots and my role. And it's actually a pretty funny story, but we, cause in college you have like the captain's practices, right. For the first, and the Ivy league doesn't start till like the end of October. So we have like yeah. two full months there. And I stayed in my lane for the first, like September, the first month. And just, we just skated and, you know, it wasn't really tryouts per se then. Right. But once camp rolled around like mid October, I just basically said, you know, how am I going to get in the lineup? And that was to be, to play hard and, and, you know, start running guys over basically. And <laughs> so, uh, so we have our first couple of days of practices and I'm, I knock, you know, a couple guys out of practice. Uh, 
And then we have our brown white scrimmage game. And one of the seniors was skating around the net and I'm back checking and he's got his head down. And I hit this guy so hard that his cage indented or like collapsed and cut him open for like a lot of stitches, like 40 stitches. It was a mess. And he decides that he wants to quit hockey after that. So I, you know, <laughs> and this guy's career, um, that's not the funny part of the story. I mean, I never like set out that to hurt funny someone. To me, but, but yeah. But honestly, and, you know, I talk about that dynamic in my book of, you know, yeah, you never want to advocate or, or go out and, and maliciously hurt someone. But honestly, my mindset there was like, get your head up or get out of my way. Like I had, I'm on this mission and yeah. I was coming, I was just coming out of that burn injury and that mentality of I'll do fucking anything to get what I want. Right. Yeah. Literally anything. And that was an example. So yeah, I hit this guy, he quits hockey and the coach pulls me in after that skate and pulls me into his office. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, we're not gonna have a team left. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I'm just trying to make the team coach. Like everyone's really good. And I'm just trying to yeah. get in the starting lineup. He's like, you're going to be in the starting lineup. Don't worry. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, that's all I needed to hear. And, uh, but so funny enough, I, so I play the first game against Cornell, uh, our home opener. And my first shift, I get a four minute charging penalty. Don't even hit the guy. I missed him. And I still got like, I, again, I tried to kill this, this kid. Yeah. Uh, go to the box for four minutes. My next shift, I get a five minute hitting from behind penalty. So I'm just being an idiot and just running around. Right. So my first game didn't go well and <laughs> I didn't play for pro like almost two months. I got healthy scratched. Wow. And so I was like, <laughs> I'm like, well, hockey was fun. This is over. I might as well <laughs> focus on my my school and and uh, so yeah, it was it was a huge adjustment, right? Especially trying to. So I had to learn how to play smarter in a way, but still play my role. And you couldn't fight, right? So I had to. How am I going to flourish in that that fourth line role at Brown? And I eventually figured it out and and started after around christmas when i got back in the lineup after a couple months of that shit show first game uh yeah you know you always for me anyways i learned the hard way uh, i seemed to be allergic to the easy way so but that was just another example and found found my role and and kind of got in the groove there but yeah it was it was definitely an adjustment it sounds like the uh the aaron bull potty uh hunger games there for that that, that <laughs> section of ncaa hockey <laughs> oh yeah yeah it was uh it was it was yeah it was it was definitely interesting definitely an adjustment yeah uh march 22nd 2010 that's a milestone day for both of us i turned 19 that day but i don't remember much of it oh you yeah? signed a professional <laughs> contract with the canucks that day so uh, you know and then again this is a couple years into your career at brown so i mean at that point I'm not sure how old you would have been, but, uh, uh, you know, like, were you aware that NHL teams might be looking or like, did you have an agent who was telling you this stuff or did it kind of come out of the blue? Yeah. And so that's another good question. It's going to be a long winded answer because there's a lot more that, that's behind that. So that was my last, that was my senior year. So my last year at Brown, I was almost 25. Um, <clears throat> and when I got to Brown, Remember that was like that was my NHL. That was it as far as I would I was concerned. I didn't ever think about pro hockey because I didn't have a really a reason to. So my first three years at Brown, I just I just had a good time. I worked my ass off. I was still in the best shape on the team, and but I just you know I enjoyed the college scene and partied, had a good time, and just enjoyed being a student athlete really. And after our junior year one of the assistant coaches pulled me up and he sat me down. He's like, Hey, you ever thought about playing pro hockey? And I said, no, never. And I just like laughed really. Yeah. I'm like, I'm 24 years old. Well, I don't really have a reason to, to ever think about that. You know, I mean, I could have probably at that time went and played in the, the, the SP or the, the central league and fought for a few hundred bucks a week, but that wasn't really, I mean, maybe for a year to say you did it, but I was more focused, focused on school, honestly, after that or after my college career. And he just, my assistant coach said, listen, I really 
think like there's a couple of American league teams asking about you. And I think you could have a solid five, 10 year career, just the way you play and the way you hit. Um, if you can add a little bit of that skill element to your game, you could, yeah, you could have a pretty good career. And I said, wow, I could never even thought about that. Thank you. <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I, I went home that night and like in my life and journey, I've had very specific defining moments of like, it's like a fork in the road and the burn unit was one, right. And to make a choice of recovering and coming back. And this was my second one, which was four years later. And I'm like, fuck, like if I can do that and come back from a burn injury and come back to play hockey, like, why can't I play in the NHL? Right. And that, yeah, I'm like, if I can do that, I can do anything. And so I kind of had a moment where I beat myself up a bit. Like, what have you been doing for the last three years? Like I totally let that, that mindset go and that kind of obsession possess, possessed sort of alter ego almost that I had. I, I let that go a little, a little bit or a lot. And because again, I, I didn't think about what was next. I was too young and naive really. And so I made a choice again that day when I got home, I'm like, all right, I'm, well, let's do this then. And went back to that, the visualization piece and the mindset piece. And I just became obsessed. I called my parents, said, I'm not coming home. I'm going to stay here and, and basically lived at the rink and just, yeah, just, I became obsessed, honestly. And, uh, and that's how it all happened. I went from no one in the NHL knowing who I was at 24 years old to probably be in a top five maybe top three player in the country yeah uh free agent wise right yeah. um i didn't i you know i had more points my last year than my first three years combined and you know i put on like 20 pounds of muscle like i was hurting hurting guys like eight you're talking about 18 year old kids coming in yeah. like 160 pounds i was I was 25 years old almost and 215 pounds. There were some, there were some pretty bad injuries. And again, not that I'm advocating for, for hurting people, but it was, I just basically considered anyone collateral damage, like get out of my way here. I'm going here or get your head up one of the two. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, I, yeah, I went from, yeah, having a, an advisor and all these things. And it just, it's just crazy how it all just, it happened and started gaining momentum and confidence and it all. And then I, yeah, I signed with, with the Canucks on March 22nd, which is another pretty interesting story because my parents had no idea. So when I told them that oh. they didn't, they didn't even believe me, which was funny, but cause I had never told anyone or let on of what I was out to do, you know? Yeah. But you, you almost don't want to talk about it just in case like it doesn't happen and nobody knows. Right. Or, yeah. Or... They knew I was having a good year, obviously. Yeah. And I said, I had been talking with a few like pro scouts and I was like, yeah, I might give pro hockey a try, but I just, no one, I just, no one would understand, you know, and that's what I went through in the burn unit, burn unit. No one, you kind of, that road is a little bit lonely, but I liked that because I don't, and no one would really get what I was going through and, or that mindset I had. And same thing with that last year. Uh, I just like to live in my own little bubble around that. Not that I was socially isolated, like very yeah. much the opposite, but when it was time to to train and, and play and, and all that uh, and visualize this, this movie, my journey that I created, I, I liked that loneliness of it and just staying in, in my bubble because again, I don't, no one would have understood. And, uh, but yeah, I, I remember calling my parents right after I signed and, and uh, I told told my my parents that I had just signed with the Vancouver Canucks, and my dad told he's like "fuck off," like get real, like what's that? I'm like I'm serious, and he didn't they didn't believe me, so it's pretty pretty funny how it all worked out. Did he have to like, like jump online or something and like yeah. verify this? Like yeah, yeah, I was like go check the internet, it's on there. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like holy shit, and just because they were kind of like how I was before that year where no one had any reason to think otherwise really right because it, it really just came out of nowhere and yeah you know and that's another example i guess of you really only need to have one 
one good year, right? I was 25 years old and, and, and still made it, but you know, everyone's in a rush, I think nowadays where you just never know, right. If you just can sneak in to these respective levels and you put together one good year, I mean, it takes a lot of obviously sacrifice and hard work. And, uh, I, I, I base I made it because I did shit. No one else would have done really. <laughs> That's the only reason why. Yeah. Uh, and, and with this visualization practice that, that helped me, but yeah. So you just never know. Right. Well, it's funny you say that about just like everyone's in a rush. Cause I know, uh, the Rangers just traded their first round pick in 2018 to Dallas and people were saying, Oh, you know, Dallas, why did they give up a first round pick to get this kid? And he's, he's unproven. And I'm like, well, he's, he's 21 years old or whatever, 21, 22 years old. Like, like, yeah. yeah he, and I mean, part of that was the league shut down and, and you know, he yeah. was a Swedish kid. Like he probably didn't really want to leave his family back home. Like, like now that things are kind of getting back to normal, like give him a, you know, give him a chance. Right. He's, he's obviously got the pedigree, but to what you're, what you're saying, it's like, yeah, if you're 22, 23, you're no longer a prospect. You're kind of a suspect in some people's mind is doesn't right. matter if you're undrafted or a first round pick. So. But, and a lot of kids think that they need to be drafted, right? If you're better off yeah. to not be drafted if you're older, right? Because you put together a year I had, I was talking like 10 teams by the end of my yeah. senior year. Right. And so basically free to sign wherever for however much you want. And, and yeah, I think it might, it might be different now, but uh, it was at the time that that was how it was. Yeah. When you get to, so, I mean, like you, you mentioned, you ended up in Manitoba for a bit and, um, but the call up to the NHL, well, what do you remember from that day? And, and I mean, what, what pops up on the call display even for you? Is it just like an unknown number? Or? <laughs> no, I, so I got called into the office in Manitoba, okay. which was, which was another interesting story because there was this, in, there was this interesting dynamic with the Canucks and the Moose at the time where I was making pretty decent cash in the minor leagues coming out of college. Um, and so Manitoba being privately owned, they, I can't remember if they were either paying my whole salary or part of my salary. And so, you know, they expected production, right. And, and so did I, and I, I did, I got off to actually a really good start in Manitoba. You know, I was playing first line paint, playing power play. I had a few points in my first couple games and, and then I just went into a bit of a, a slump and a little bit of a dry spell. And, you know, it's, it's a business at that point. So if you're not going to produce, we, there's other guys that will. Right. And so I had to go back to, again, to what I knew. And then I just started fighting, you know, basically every game and, and, you know, you, you get late, not that I, you know, I don't know how it would have shook out, but I'm just like, man, if I could have just, you know, if those few first few posts maybe went as goals, um, yeah. it could have been a little different maybe, but I don't know. That was just my journey. And I don't, I might not have made it to the NHL without playing that role. Right. And so that's what got me noticed. But, but anyways, so there was this, this dynamic between the two teams where the Canucks were like, they were ecstatic with how I was playing, you know, playing that toughness and fighting because that's what they wanted right from me. And I think we both had aspirations that I could be an eventual third line penalty killer, guy and I mean I think I was better than my stats showed probably but uh but anyways and but the moose were like I was healthy scratched even the odd time in my first year because they're we, they're we want more production and I'm like well the Canucks are telling me that like don't change anything we love what you're doing you know so there's this there's this dynamic there and so I got called in to the office in, in Manitoba right right before Christmas and I was kind of like, here we go. Like, we're going to get into it again about how I'm playing like shit. And uh, which, you know, I, I wanted to, to contribute more. And I, it was, you know, that confidence was kind of going like this and with the puck and gripping the stick tight. And so I go in there thinking that, you know, I'm going to be healthy scratched or they won't, they're going to kind of want me to do more, obviously. And he, uh, the coach looks at me, he's like, you're going to Vancouver tomorrow. And I was like, Oh, I didn't expect that, but sweet. <laughs> and because uh, uh, a week or two prior, I had a pretty epic game in Abbotsford where I, again, it was, 
injury based for the other players, but, you know, got me noticed. And uh, obviously in Abbotsford, they were all there, right? So, yeah, it wasn't your typical call-up where I was expecting maybe getting healthy scratched in the minors or something, but, you know, I was going up to Vancouver. So that's how it all happened. You're probably, they go, uh, you know, you're going up to Vancouver and you're probably thinking like, for like a training stint or like vacation, yeah, yeah. like what, what's going right. on here, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, that's good, man. I mean, the, I wanted to, to go over the first career goal with you. Yeah. I watched that, watched that. That was a, that was a gritty fourth line. Right. Tanner glass trucks somebody behind the net. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden the puck comes right out and, and, you know, you kind of touched on the fact you were scoring in, in Manitoba and I was impressed with just, you know, pucks on your stick, uh, quick hands in tight. And, and all of a sudden, it's in on Yaroslav yeah. Lack, who at the time was really elevating his his stature in the NHL as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I look back on that goal. Well, A, it is. It's the, a quintessential, like, fourth line goal, right? Yeah. The epitome of of a, of a grinder goal. But, uh, yeah, I, I probably would have tried to one-time that puck. But... I probably would have not gotten it up and he would have saved it. So I look back and, you know, at my second game in, in the NHL, like yeah. I'm just putting it on net. Right. And the, the fact that I stopped it and as he slid it over rate five full, uh, yeah, it worked out. I played with Yarrow in Washington uh, a few years later. So I always had that in my back pocket. <laughs> I was like, first goal, first goal. Thank you. <laughs> Cause I didn't have many goals. Right. So he always gave him a hard time, but uh but yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was crazy how it all worked out. That second game was probably the best game I ever played in the NHL. Um, yeah. You know, the first game's a bit of a whirlwind with, with all the, the nerves and excitement. And then the second game, you're just kind of like, all right, I'm, I'm here. And, you know, I, I, I feel like I belong. I'm playing pretty well. And yeah, I just, I don't know. Everything went well. I hit a post in the third period of that game too. So I was kind of like, fuck, I almost scored two goals. Like, uh, I don't know that the AHL and a, a lot of the guys will tell you this, that it's, it's almost harder to play in. It's just, it's a bit chaotic, right? Guys are trying to get noticed to make it like, and I would, I was the same. I'd run out of position every time to, to run someone over. Right. Yeah. The NHL is a little bit different. So, and then you got guys in the AHL, you guys trying not to get sent down guys trying to make it up and there's a lot of turnover. Right. And it's just, yeah, it's just a little bit more chaotic where everything in the NHL was very, the pace is faster, but it's more controlled. Right. So I would get the puck and I'm like, Oh, my guy's like right there. Here you go. Or if I put it in his skates, they're picking it up every time. Right. Just yeah. It's more, more skill. So it's, it's more controlled that way. So yeah, that was a perfect example. That game of, everything was just it, it went pretty easy and it's and, and pretty seamless so being being that you were from british columbia you're playing for i don't know if you, you were a canucks fan growing up but it's still kind yeah. of your hometown your hometown team right and and so it's one thing if you're 19 years old but being that you were kind of in your mid-20s by this point was it uh, distracting at all or intimidating at all being that, you know, you're, you're suddenly in a locker room, you know, prime Sedins and the and Luongo and Kessler and all these guys, or, or was it actually maybe a little bit better for you being that you're in your mid twenties and you can probably say no to the 150,000 requests for tickets and all that stuff. Yeah. I, I didn't have a problem with putting boundaries up, I guess, but yeah, I wasn't intimidated at all. I was, uh, maybe a little starstruck and it was very surreal, right? Just like you said, I mean, uh, I was a huge Canucks fan as a kid growing up. And I remember I played in like the little mites intermission games in the Canucks uh, two times actually. And then they even had their training camp in Vernon when I was 18. Yeah. And I just remember thinking like, you know, at the time, like these guys are just, they're huge and they're so good. And it was just, the farthest thing from my head at the time that I could ever do that, you know? And, uh, and then seven years later from that time, I was like, here, here I am, you know, it was just, it was very surreal, uh, but I wasn't ever intimidated. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a cool experience, especially that first training camp, you know, going on two on ones with, with Hank and Danny or, you know, and just, 
basically just had to stand there and get a <laughs> free one-timer in the open net. So yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, cause yeah. Cause you came in 2011, right. And that was when the team was, 2011, was yeah. yeah. And I mean, the team was, that was the, the cup run year and everything. And yeah. Um, so I can only imagine just, yeah. How, how, uh, I, I would have been the same as you. Like I've, I've actually bumped into the Sedin several times, just being downtown and, and doing whatever. And it's always kind of like, whoa, you know, and, and uh, yeah, that's, you know, probably why I never would have been a great pro hockey player. Cause I would have been sitting there, you know, drooling. Um, yeah. You, you, you would have, you would have found your lane after a few days, I think. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I would have shut up and, and just stared <laughs> from a distance, I think, but yeah. um, I was lucky you know, to play with such amazing, like, Vancouver and then in Washington, like Ovi yeah. and Backstrom. And yeah, so I was, it was pretty cool, pretty special to play with those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. Cause then you get plucked off waivers a, a couple of years after the, the Vancouver Canucks, uh, you go to Washington, which, you know, um, that was my favorite team growing up. And, and uh, I asked Alzner the same thing, but you know, you come in there, you got Ovechkin, he's, he's the most electrifying man in the NHL. And, and uh, what was your first impression? Cause by the time you got there, he was pretty much well-established as, 50 oh, yeah. goals every year and and maybe uh i don't know if he toned it down a little bit because i would have said by 2014 or so he would have matured but after watching the 2018 uh cup videos of him swimming in fountains i don't know that he ever really slowed down um but what was your first impression going into that room yeah i think i mean with just ovi he's such a character and he just you know he really owns who he is he loves the game he loves to score goals obviously he loves to have some fun and he doesn't really give a shit what, what anyone thinks. And I like, I respect that. I mean, I kind of beat to the, the same drum a, a little bit, but yeah, I just, it was, uh, it was a, an interesting dynamic going from Vancouver to DC at the time, because Vancouver was very much at the time, what you would expect, you know, one of the top teams in the NHL to be like very regimented, like, private chefs like all the best food workouts every day you know sleep doctors sports psychologists everyone you could think of every resource you could think of imaginable is is there and then i get to dc and it was it was like a country club and i'm like do we have a workout like it's been a week and (laughs) and i'm I'm like and ovi's like yeah if you want to right like just very lackadaisical and that spilled over into practice and uh that changed you know i i think with with barry trotz especially coming in and that culture changed and then you know they win you know a couple years later so i don't think that was an accident but uh so it was a little too much that and then it they pulled it back and because obviously the talent was always there but but yeah man it was uh very different atmospheres and but yeah both both really really cool experiences the guys in in dc were were great and uh not that vancouver was was different i mean all the guys are you know pretty close on most teams uh washington i would say i mean vancouver especially the year we had the cup run you could feel that uh and then i felt that in washington and again i think with the culture change it all came together for him or maybe it was because i left but who knows But, well, uh, you go into that locker room too, and I wanted to ask you because you have Tom Wilson, you got Steve Alexi, John Erskine. When you come in as a waiver wire pickup, did you feel like you still had to be doing what you were doing? Like, I guess I'll ask it like, did you feel like you you could change your game if you wanted to, or were you just kind of coming in thinking, okay, I'll be like the third or fourth heavyweight on a team that already has a bunch of guys that are willing to do the role? Yeah, no, I never. I never thought I, I could change my game. I knew I, I, I got the shit beat out of me. My first game, uh, I fought Peluso and he had strung me yeah. out, strung me out. And I was just in a bad spot and he just wailed on the back of my head. And it was actually, that was a funny story because I, all the trainers with the jets had been my trainers with the moose. Right. Okay. And so I had to get like 30 stitches in the back of my head. Like he just pounded on me. And, uh, I remember go, getting stitched up in the locker room and, and Mollet, the trainer, because Jets comes in. He's like, what are you doing fighting that guy? Like, he's a big boy. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I take my licks when they happen and whatever. 
And, but he ended up breaking his hand. So I'm like, well, I technically won then. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going back in the game. He's not. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, uh, where was it going? What was your question there? Sorry. Oh, oh just the, with the fighting. Well, yeah. just with all the heavyweights they had, like, yeah. Cause you're, you're coming in, uh, yeah. you know, on a team that already has a few guys. So. Yeah. That was an, I knew who I was and why they picked me up and it wasn't to, to score goals. So at the, at the moment anyways, but that was always the, the hard part. And a lot of, a lot of fourth line guys will tell you this, um, especially then, uh, because now, you know, not that we couldn't play, uh, we could play, but I kind of overlap right when it was changing. Right. That's when like yeah. the, the true enforcers were kind of getting weeded out. <laughs> and I was that, you know, sort of next generation, I guess, enforcer that could, I could skate really well and the skill part, you know, wasn't quite there for me um, or it was, I think, but with a, and a lot of guys, but it's more that leash and that confidence. That's tough. It's a tough balance, right? Where I'm like, well, I want to be creative and, and try new things and make plays, but I also know, and same thing with my line mates that if, if I turn it over, you know, at the other team's blue line, cause I'm trying to make a play. I don't play for the rest of the game maybe, or the rest of the period for sure. So there's always this like fine balance of, you know, do I just go out and, and just play or, you know, just keep it simple, dump it in, go kill someone, get in a fight. And so I had to do that right to an extent to, to stay in the league. Uh, but I, you know, it's always that, yeah, that thought of, do we try and like make some plays? Uh, but again, there's a high risk there. And so that was always really tricky, but um, yeah, to go back to your question, I always knew that I had to always have that, you know, the fighting and the hitting to really to stay in the league. And then my, again, my plan was just like any other level, right. Get established there. And then hopefully add those layers to my game later on, unfortunately, like with injuries and, uh, piling up for me and you know again you're playing in the best league in the world and i'm not saying i could have been a second or third liner right but um it definitely would have liked to add more layers to my game at, at some point right but it was just yeah that confidence of being able to do that was it was a tricky balance so yeah um i, I got a couple things i wanted to ask you about from a confidential source that i'm sure you'll never be able to guess who it is um I heard uh, apparently you would get into some pretty serious board games that had severe punishments. And I was wondering if, uh, if you were at Liberty to, to maybe share some of those punishments that took place. Oh yeah. I know. I know who you're talking about there. Yeah. We uh, trying to think about some of the good punishments we had. Well, I remember, like, are, we, are we talking like monopoly and stuff like that or no, no, it was more, it was this game called Wits and Wagers, but we never actually played it the way it was meant to be played. It was basically trivia, just random trivia questions. And whoever, how do we do it? Everyone like put a punishment into a hat. So you'd write down something that if you win, everyone has to do that, right? Or if they didn't want it, then they could take a few shots or some drinks or something like that. And uh, so, yeah, we'd have a group, everyone puts in a punishment. And then if you got, I think it was the first one to be, to get five wins for the trivia and to get a win, you just had to be closest to the number, right? If, so if I said, how many people live in the state of Utah or something, right? Then okay. we, yeah. everyone writes their guess, whoever's closest gets a point. So whoever gets five, then it's like, you get to unveil your punishment and then everyone has to do it. <laughs> so oh man we had some interesting ones uh eating dog food uh, <laughs> licking licking the dog from tail to nose uh like just going naked in the snow doing a naked yeah. snow dive for x amount of time nothing like super crazy or yeah. doing a a naked lap around the block or something you know uh drinking a bunch of salt water which probably is not actually that safe no uh, <laughs> uh i don't know like doing a 
you know, it really just depended on, on who the person was. I sometimes like to take it a little step further, but we had everything from like dance to a song for a few minutes to yeah, naked laps around the block to drink X amount of whatever drink that was available or, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah we had, we had a little bit of fun with that one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you find You find out how like, uh, a bit psychotic some of your teammates are when you got one guy who's going hey just you know jump out in the snow and the other guy's going i want you to eat that whole bag of dog food like just yeah. intense <laughs> stuff like that right yeah yeah um the other one uh that this source again totally confidential you'll never guess who they are yeah. uh, you also mentioned i should ask you about the time uh you guys all missed christmas morning one year after what he described was an aggressive christmas eve and he, he kind of left it at that so i don't know if there's i don't remember that one I think that's I, the whole point, Aaron, is that you guys yeah, <laughs> had yeah, an aggressive yeah. Christmas Eve. Yeah, I feel like that overlaps with some of this <laughs> game we were playing. Okay. It, it could, I think it was probably involved in the same capacity there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll move on to the just a quick question about the fights, because, I mean, your, your hockeyfights.com list, I mean, you fought Ryan Reeves, you fought Kevin Miller, Jordan Tutu. Uh, your fight with Mike Brown was was all offense, no defense. I mean, uh, yeah, that one hurt after that one, yeah. Yeah, and Mike Brown. I mean, he played in Vancouver for a brief time too, and in, you know the yeah. handlebar mustache. Uh, I think that's yeah. pure intimidation on his part. But was there uh, was there ever a time, and I can think of one for sure that I know you you might feel this way. But did you ever have other fights where you kind of skate away after it and you go like? fuck, like I really, I really kicked the shit out of that guy. And then he, he kind of feel bad after, or was it all just a part of the role that you guys played? Yeah, I never felt bad. Uh, I mean, probably the, the, the biggest injury I laid down with the fight was when I one punched Winchester and unless, yeah, you never want to see a guy, you know, unconscious, uh or badly hurt with a concussion right so i think that you know hits a different bone where you feel remorse for sure because but at this you know again at the same time when i did that i knew i made the team right yeah. because they were looking for toughness i had just hit another guy earlier in the game knocked yeah. him out of the game so after i had those two it's it's again you, you're kind of a little bit at the expense of of a mission Right. And unfortunately injuries happen, but I still felt remorse in terms of, yeah, if a guy was hurt like that, but I mean, I think you'll, if you, you know, talk to other fighters, I feel like they'd probably feel the same way. Um, you know, if I beat you up and broke your nose and gave you black eyes, then the sick part of me likes that, right. That, yeah. you know, I, I beat you up and you're going to be fine kind of thing. Yeah. Right. But, but yeah, the concussions are, are a tough one because, you know, especially now that we know more about it and the, the debilitating effects that that can have long-term, I mean, I know guys that struggle with it now. Right. And so I think, especially reflecting back, you know, you, you mature as a man and I look back now and I'm like, man, I don't know if I'd make some of those hits that I made. Uh, for me, I hurt more guys from hits, not fights. And, but yeah, I think. I know the I again I only had that one knockout and I never got knocked out. I got, you know, pretty fucked up from a few fights, but never scary out cold, you know, where I think anytime that happens, it's no one wants to see that, right? But um yeah, I think as, as a fighters, if if you like if you got a bro, I know like after I fought Brownie, um, it was funny, like that's the cool thing about social media. I don't I play the game a little bit and you know it helps you know i i talk about my business and what i do in the book and it's, it's good for that and but there's a lot of it i i don't like you know and just just being on there all the time but yeah it's funny i connected with mike brown on on social media and i was like my face isn't the same you bastard and <laughs> and uh he's like yeah you yeah i was pretty messed up after that one too but yeah he got me he got me pretty good that was my fourth broken nose that one oh and uh but those are the ones where it's like, hey, you know, we had a good fight and that's that was part of the game, really. And so you you take a bit of pride in that, I think. But yeah, so I mean, again, I'm giving you long winded answers. But yeah, I, I think uh, there's always remorse with 
for me with, you know, head trauma, I think. And yeah, you know, you never want to see that. Um, but again, you know, you're trying to establish your role. You're trying to establish who you are. And, you know, again, if, if you did, you know, say win a decisive fight or lay a big hit that creates more space for you later on. And so that, you know, it was all part of, you know, trying to, trying to create that. And that would give you more confidence on the playing side. Right. So it all kind of overlapped in that sense, but, but yeah, I never, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a bit of a tough one, I guess is, is how to word it, but. Well, the, the Winchester one, and I, I love that you used that. Uh, I watched your, your trailer on YouTube for your book. And I still, to this day, laugh every time because it's such a dichotomy of two seconds earlier, John Garrett's talking about how Cheryl Teague still looks good. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> you knocked out a guy. <laughs> and funny. it was just such a weird, like the way it cuts, it's just, you know, yeah, she looks good. And Brad Winchester's on the ice. Uh, how oh, cool yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the book and, and we got to talk about this. It's coming out October 25th. Um, and you, you talked to earlier in this interview about the backstory to that. Um, I didn't know, you know, the, the junior camping story and all that, but um, yeah. you know, your journey to the NHL almost didn't happen and it had nothing to do with on ice play. And I, I don't, I don't want you to go in and, and, you know, give away the whole book, but I was wondering if you could just provide some context as to you know why you wrote this in the first place. Yeah. So I wrote it. It had always been a side project, you know, ever since I made this recovery, really, to come back and play hockey. Everyone was like, you need to write a book, man. Like, this journey is crazy. And so, it, again, yeah, it had always been the side project for me, especially, you know, after I made it to the NHL and because it was just such a, a far thought for anyone, <laughs> right? And uh, so, you know, time went on and I, I had this career-ending neck injury in Washington and you know, I was 30 years old and, you know, you kind of have this identity crisis. What am I going to do now that, you know, hockey's over. And I was going through a bunch of other personal stuff and trying to find out what I wanted to do. And I worked in wealth management for a couple of years, ultimately left that. Uh, and then, yeah, tried to kick open other doors, uh, looked at buying a local business and that, that fell through at the last second, thank God, because of COVID. Um, but then, and when COVID hit, I was, I, you know, I didn't have a lot going on. And again, I'm like, what am I going to, I got to, you know, I'm 30, I guess I would have been like 33 at the time. And I'm like, yeah, what am I going to do? And then I always, I had thought back to the book and, or, you know, the thought of writing a book and I was like, well, now's, now's the time. And so I, I started writing it two years ago and uh, yeah. And then I launched this, this business, what I do uh, now pretty, pretty quickly after with, with the visualization piece and working with athletes on the, on the mental side. And yeah, that's how it all, that's how it all came to be. And yeah, it's funny because I, I, I went back and forth with the title so many times of what to call it. Um, but I always kept coming back to the fighter and it's not probably what a lot of people think of, you know, literally a fighter because I was yeah. that but it's, it's really more about fighting for what you love and, and fighting for what you believe in and, and, and honoring your dreams and fighting for those dreams. And that's really what it's about of, you know, again, that journey from the burn unit to the NHL. And there's, a, there's some good stories in there along the way as well. Um, but, but yeah, and then it's also about, you know, life after hockey and, you know, that's when, that's when life, really hit me from like an emotional spiritual standpoint and trying to navigate the challenges of, of all that and 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 wrapped around the whole book is is the visualization piece and how it's you know been so instrumental in my life and and how it's changed everything for me and and allowed me to accomplish you know all these different things and you know it, adversity has always been disguised as this gift in my life uh it's been true you know every time and visualizations kind of helped me unwrap that and and discover this gift that that it, it's given me but and i think that's the message too is a lot of us don't realize that right and we don't have maybe have the wherewithal to to think that it could be a gift right um and yeah I, like i've been 
I've been in the depths, man, with, with some of the stuff that, that I've gone through and like a lot of us, right. Especially with COVID and mental health and, and all that. And, but yeah, I, I reflect back and it's, it's all been a gift and, um, but I could have not seen it that way. Right. I think my experiences starting with the, with the burn injury and that journey have allowed me to reframe that in my head and, and going forward as well. So that's really what it's about. And that's how it all, how it all came to be was, was through COVID, like a lot of different things, but, <laughs> but yeah, it, it had been a side project for like that burn happened in 2005. So that's 17 years ago. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I finally decided to to do it and it's been, re- yeah, it's been a, a ton, a ton of work, but it's been a, yeah, a really rewarding project for sure. And it should be mentioned too, like you weren't that cliche student athlete at Brown, you know, studying Egyptian basket weaving, like you have, you've got a degree in human biology and neuroscience. So this, you know, yeah. and, and with your business too, it's not just you, the athlete with the platform teaming up with somebody else. Cause I mean, I, behind me, I've got a bookshelf and I've got a lot of books on, on the, the kind of stuff you're talking about, but it's usually, yeah. you know, here's a football coach that partnered with a doctor and they, right. they kind of, but you've got both, you know, you're, you're the athlete who made it. You've also got the degree to back it up. Yeah. I definitely learned a lot about, you know, how the brain works and, you know, the psychology piece and, and all that when I, when I got to Brown, which is awesome. And I think that's important, but just my experience with it, having lived it has been, yeah, very instrumental in, 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 in the knowledge, right? The knowledge is one thing, but to have, having lived it is, and putting it into practice, uh, definitely gives you that, that, that experience. And that's, that's so needed, right. To, to be able to, I think, communicate it, uh, because yeah, again, you know, it, you've lived it. Um, so yeah, no, it's been, it's been a good journey. So well, and then the, the, one of the things I did want to ask you too, because you, you mentioned this before, is um, the, the voices that we listen to. And I know in my past too, I've had you know, similar kind of crossroads. Um, you mentioned when you were in the burn unit, you had a doctor telling you, you know, you're not, you're not going to probably play hockey again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you had you know, friends and family that were just telling you, hey, like, we're just grateful you're alive. Totally. Uh, and then, and then you had your own voice, which, which, where you said, you know, I worked so fucking hard to get here to almost yeah. make NCAA. So is that kind of, am I correct in saying that maybe the, the loudest voice you listen to is your own instead of the outside, you know, be grateful for what you have and your dreams are killed. Yeah. And. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but we're not, we're not wired to th- to think like that right we're wired to think you know what could hurt us what are the threats here and we're wired to think about what could go wrong and a lot of times that's the negative voice that creeps in and i was you know we're that never goes away so it's this constant battle right of it's like a, t- a teeter-totter right what what's what are you having more of and i was having more of the negative thought and the pain didn't help that uh in the moment but but yeah just having the visualization practice and and for me like writing and directing this like this movie that i wanted to see and where it went and you almost had to create an experience and that's a big part of what i what i teach now too is it's not just a thought because that doesn't really evoke change in your brain chemistry and the wiring of your brain but if you can create an experience which therefore means you creating emotion that's when you start tapping into the subconscious, right. And, and the, these different pathways, and that's where you really notice change and the thoughts follow that. Right. Yeah. So, so for me, that was a big uh, reason why I was able to change those thoughts. Uh, because again, I, you know, yeah, the, the battle of the negative and positive, the battle is always going to be there. Like I said, and especially with COVID, right? Like just all the, a lot of negative, a lot of stress. So we're just naturally, we're innately wired that way to think that way. And so that's where this tool, like the visualization and it can really not just supplement it, but just enhance that, that feeling of, of positivity. Right. And again, the, the thoughts follow that. Right. And, but yeah, so 
but I had to have this moment for me to, to, to switch that. Right. If I didn't, if I don't have that, that moment, then I think I probably would have had it at some point, but I don't know what it would have looked like. It would have been different. Right. And, but I think it's important to know, remember that, like, we always have a choice, right? You have a choice of how you're talking to yourself. Uh, you can't control most things in the world, right? But you can control how you how you think, how you feel, how you perceive something, how you perceive your own reality, right? And that was a big thing for me of in the burn unit, especially where I just lived in a different reality, really. Yeah. Right. I was transported out of this reality. I was that reality I was living in because I knew that I was going to this other reality, which was the scholarship and coming back to play hockey. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would love to talk more about, it. I've taken so much of your time, man. I apologize. Um, no, no, I'll get you. Uh, I'll, I'll end it on this note, man. You've got, uh, you got a book tour coming up from what I, I read on your website. Yeah. A little tour, uh, yeah. I've seen that on social media. So uh, different type of road trip, I'm sure different, uh, you're not going to have a bunch of drunk people banging on the glass. I'm sure at these book, uh, these book tour releases, um, hey, you never know, but man. <laughs> <laughs> you might be out in the parking lot fighting people. Like you don't know. I mean, yeah, hey, you never know, the world's right? gone a little mad. Um, yeah, yeah. where can people connect with you and, and, uh, and also check out your program and, and your coaching as well. Yeah. I would say the best is just my website or, or social website is just my name, Aaron Volpatti.com social Aaron Volpatti or at Aaron Volpatti. And yeah, there'll be some, some updates kind of as we approach this launch date with the book and, and different programs are on the website as well. But, but yeah, stay tuned. There'll be events, you know, pretty much everywhere I played at this point. And then from there, I'm not sure we'll, we'll look to do some, something else, but yeah, I'm going to be kind of local Revelstoke Vernon area for the first week of at the end of October. And then we go to DC uh, this November 7th and 9th and I'm in Providence, Rhode Island after that, the 11th, 12th, and then Vancouver 17th, 18th of November. And we have some tentative ones in Winnipeg and Kelowna. So, and again, from there, who knows, man, I, I don't know where it'll go from there, but it'll be, it'll all be like Amazon and everywhere else that you can buy everything else in the world. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it'll be there. It'll be there as well, but yeah, that'll be the in-person event. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, again, Aaron, thanks so much for doing this, man. Um, and uh, yeah, guys, check out AaronVolpati.com and uh, you can get all the information that you need 